0: to be reading from God's Word this morning. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. You'll find these in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, please take one of these. We welcome you to have it. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 from 1 to 13. That's the entire chapter. It's on page 954 of one of those hardcover black Bibles. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I'm just going to ask God's blessing on the sermon. Father, we want to glorify you today. We want you to be glorified in the preaching of your word as we just sang. We want to hear the truth, God. We want to hear your thoughts that you have had written down for us and are preserving. God, help us not to be the judge of your word, but help us to submit to the judgment of your word. Your word is power, and your word is life. Please protect us, God, as we preach the truth. As we see everyone do what is right in his own eyes, in our culture and society, God, please protect us and give us strength and wisdom. As we saw Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were willing to go into the fiery furnace rather than bow down to this world's idols. And as we saw Daniel willing to go into the lion's den so that he could continue to worship and pray to you. So God, help us to stand firm, to stand fast on your word, the truth. Help us to bend and break to your word and not to bend your word to fit us. Please bless as your word is preached boldly. Please bless as this church stands upon the firm foundation of the scriptures as our authority. God, we absolutely need you. We are lost without you. We need your power and your strength and your protection and your wisdom. So, Father, I pray that you would bless mightily the preaching of your word. Amen.
1: We're continuing our way through the book of, uh, I was going to say Ephesians, through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, and um, we are just dealing with uh, whatever Paul deals with the church in. And so we've just come out of a period of a number of weeks in um, talking about uh, division in the church and disunity. And now for a couple of weeks, we're be talking about uh, sex in the church and uh, immorality in the church in particular. As I was reflecting on this this past week, sometimes uh, preaching a biblical text doesn't seem like the best way uh, actually to deliver the message. I would like to think maybe that uh, all of us are sitting around a big dining room table uh, this morning and uh, we're having a serious sober family discussion together. And if you're visiting uh, with us today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, pull up a chair and join the family. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, welcome too. You have the privilege of being a fly on the wall, so to speak, of a family discussion, an intimate, significant, and crucial family discussion, because we're talking about sin. And the problem is, so it seems, that nobody wants to deal with the elephant that's in the room in this particular church. I read parts of a book uh, yesterday, which is one of my favorites, written in 1995, and in the preface of that book, the author writes, Preachers mumble about sin. I don't want to mumble today. I hope I can be clear today. From time to time, and in fact, far too often these days, we hear that somebody has just received a serious diagnosis of cancer. It's a difficult word to receive. Emotions run raw, faith is about to be tested, and very often such a diagnosis is accompanied with mourning, mourning over the implications of this new reality for one's life and one's family and friends. And certainly sometime in, very soon after that diagnosis, a course of action needs to be determined on how to deal with it. Well, the church in Corinth had been diagnosed with a spiritual cancer. Their response to it, however, did not reflect the seriousness of the situation that they were in. And in fact, it appears that they had decided to ignore it and do nothing about it. And so this morning, I just want to open up with that illustration of spiritual cancer in the background. The first point is simply this, sin. Let's call it what the Bible calls it, in this case, sexual immorality. Today, again, when a lump appears in our physical body, we generally will make a call to a doctor. And what we want is some kind of identification, a name for it. We rarely just say to ourselves, well, that's no big deal. I'm just going to leave it alone and not pursue it any farther. Again, a number of years ago, I read another book, which I've referred to a few times, Over the course of my life, Whatever Became of Sin, written by the psychiatrist Carl Menninger. And he described in it the disappearance of sin from our culture and our conversation. And one of the contributing factors he said to its disappearance was the fact that we have renamed it. In other words, language is powerful, it evokes all kinds of images, it gives context, context. it makes associations. And here are just a couple of examples of that in our culture today. As Canadians, we have just walked through this in our own media, where a lie is now called a mistake. It might be a mistake to say two plus two is seven, or it might be a mistake to leave the ice cream out on the kitchen counter, but those are not moral issues. A lie is not a mistake. It is a moral issue and a disregard of one of God's commandments. But that's not the only instance of renaming. Now, in our culture, we have become very familiar and comfortable with calling adultery an affair. We refer to sexual immorality as fooling around, or as hooking up, or as living together. And if we can be so naive to think, we call it sleeping together. We refer to homosexuality as same-sex attraction. Sin is now often, in general, called a disease effectively moving it out of a moral realm into a medical realm. Or we label it a disorder, effectively moving it again from a moral realm into a psychological or a behavioral realm. And so by uh, renaming something, we can change how people perceive it, how they think about it. And I I think there's maybe only one thing that's as serious as renaming a sin, and that is to leaving it unnamed. It's true with a medical diagnosis. It's true with a spiritual diagnosis. It is a foolhardy thing to leave it unnamed. You and I will never begin to deal with the issues of our soul until we recall what the Bible calls the issues of our soul, sin, and give it a specific name. You will never reach a correct diagnosis in your life, physically or spiritually, until you receive a correct prognosis or diagnosis. I just want to remind us today, loved ones, there is such a thing as sin. It has many biblical names. And Paul is now writing to the church in Corinth here, and he says to them, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He names it. Sexual immorality among you. What's the issue? A man has his father's wife. That's incest. It's one of the first things that the holiness called in Leviticus chapter 18 deals with. And Paul's astonishment is not hidden. It's like, actually? Like, are you kidding me? Partly because I think he had already talked about sexual issues in a previous letter, which we don't have. He says there in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people there was a question going on about how do we deal with sexual immorality in our church and he's also partly astonished because the nature of the sexual immorality that's being described it is incest that is tolerated corinth was awash with sexual immorality it would be no easy thing to come out of a uh, of a culture in a city like corinth maybe we would call it like vegas and in essence, it's a no, no easy thing to come out of a culture like Parksville, which is also rampant with sexual immorality and become a follower of Jesus Christ. Kevin DeYoung, in his great book on um, a holiness, a hole in your holiness, has a whole chapter dedicated to sexual immorality. He writes this, and it's a little bit of a longer quote, but he says, you know from living in this world that sexual immorality is a huge problem. I don't have to convince you that we live in a culture flooded with sex. You can find it in the stores, in songs, in sports, on billboards, on the beach, on the movie screen, on YouTube, on Hula, on your iPhone, in mail, in catalogs, in car magazines, and just about everywhere you look. He says, but this chapter is not about the culture out there. It's about those of us here and what we as Christians are doing, what we are seeing, and what we may not know we are doing or seeing. Finally says, if we could transport Christians from almost any other century to any of today's Christian countries in the West, I believe what would surprise them most, besides our phenomenal affluence, is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't offend our consciences. In fact, unless it's really bad, sexual immorality seems normal, just a way of life and often downright entertaining. So what is sexual immorality? Let's put it on the table, because that's what we'll be dealing with today and for the rest of the next two or three weeks. As I see it, sexual immorality is any sexual relationship in thought or in deed with anyone or anything other than your opposite-sex human spouse. It is all sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. The only way that we are to understand sex and God's gift of sex to us is understand God's creation of us as male and female and His gift to us of marriage. And we find that is the starting place of all sexual activity is God's gracious gift to us of a human partner of the opposite sex. Here in Corinth, they have done something with God's definition of the proper boundaries for sexual relationships. The issue is incest. A man has taken his father's wife. The problem is that there is a lump in the body of Christ in Corinth. The body, the Bible says, is not meant for sexual immorality, That's not what our bodies are for. It's not created for that, whether we're Christians or non-Christians. Just like I could say, the body is not meant for smoking. The body is not meant for sexuality, but it's for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Our bodies have been created to glorify God, and we glorify God by honoring His boundaries for our lives. In another place, we're just told, flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality, or but the sexually immoral person, and again, I would use the word just to help us get this, the smoker sins against his own body. You do something to yourself. When you're engaged in sexual immorality, it's not just something out there that affects other people. It has a devastating impact on you, yourself, inside. Finally, another verse, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain just means stop. Don't do it. Avoid it. Abstain from sexual immorality. We find this all through the scripture. We could read probably hundreds of scriptures which would tell us that sexual immorality and following Jesus Christ are incompatible. Period. They don't go together. Another place Paul would write, we'll look at this a little bit later. Do you not know... That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what is, de- what is described as the unrighteous? Well, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That means if we practice those things and live in those things that the kingdom of God is out of our reach. In another place... A writer says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Serious stuff. So Paul is telling, is writing, he's he's bringing to the forefront two things that are going on. He's saying, first of all, there's there's an individual, a brother. He's claiming to be a brother in Christ. And he's embraced sin. And he's unrepentant. And he's willingly and wholeheartedly following after this sin and claiming to be a brother at the same time. He's taken his father's wife, which is most likely his stepmother. And the second issue is that not only is a Christian brother embraced sin, but a Christian body. The local body of believers in Corinth has embraced sin. The sinning brother. He is among them. Paul says with shock, even the pagan community wouldn't tolerate this. Even a sex crazed um, city like Corinth would be shocked to tolerate a man who is having sexual relations with his stepmother. And so Paul's astonishment at this sin is matched only by the astonishment of the Gentile culture, the pagan culture, those who don't follow Christ to profess Christ, who would also be shocked at it. So, loved ones, a failure to address sin here in this text and in the Bible is incomprehensible. Paul was astonished to hear that sin was tolerated in the church. And maybe they simply needed to start by naming it. And by identifying it the second issue that is raised and there's lots of them i'm just skipping through these but the second is in verse two there and it's simply this sin don't boast about it mourn over it again to continue with a cancer diagnosis analogy we would rather be shocked would we not if a loved one or somebody we knew had received a diagnosis of cancer went around boasting about it. It's not something to be proud of. It's not something to be boasting in. It's not something to be puffed out about. It just doesn't fit. A, A diagnosis like that does not fit with pride or arrogance or boasting. And so in the same way, Paul is saying, well, neither do boasting and sin fit. There's no place for parading around being proud and happy and arrogant in your sin, particularly if you claim to be a brother and sister in Christ. Paul doesn't elaborate on this as much as I would like, but clearly the Corinthian believers had a problem with pride and with spiritual arrogance. They had reveled in their wisdom and thought they were brighter than anybody else and any other of their spiritual fathers. They were um, happy in their self-acclaimed spiritual maturity. Look at how bright we are and how far ahead we are and how mature we are. And here now, they're arrogant and they're boasting in their toleration of sin and their lack of biblical action towards a brother who claimed to be a Christian who was living in sin. And they had no insight at all into the spiritual danger that they were bringing upon themselves by tolerating sin. I wondered, maybe it reflected a, simply a pride in sin, a twisted acceptance of it, and we can be like that. It might be like the Christians that Paul wrote to in Rome who are saying, well, let's continue in sin. Because as we continue in sin and tolerate sin, it just gives God this great opportunity to be gracious and merciful to us. So the more we sin, the more we see God's grace at work. And Paul says, may it never be. You've died to sin. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Sin's hold on you has been broken. How can you ever have that kind of a view to sin? Maybe it's a little bit more serious and they had taken the tact that some in the church that Jude was writing to when he wrote, certain ones have crept in among you unnoticed who have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's a big word. It just means the grace of God into freedom to sin. It's not unlike the Romans. It's just a more deliberate thing. They deny Christ as Lord in their life and they say, well, now I'm justified. I'm free to do whatever I want because all of my sins have been covered. Christ, And so maybe they were boasting and arrogant in their salvation in Christ. Maybe it was a social reality and their boasting was in spite of the sexual immorality, not because of it. The problem was that not that they applauded the incestuous relationship, but that they ignored it. If so, it was doubtful that they ignored this man's sin for theological reasons, but rather they ignored it for either practical or social reasons. And we know that. Was the person who was guilty of sinning of a particular social standing or maybe they were rather wealthy in the church and of influence in the church and they didn't want to upset the apple cart so they just looked the other way. We've seen this before. We'd prefer not to deal with it because of who we're dealing with and because of what they might do. Maybe it was out of fear. They just want to deal with the fallout of a difficult situation and of dealing with a brother who needed to be corrected whatever was behind their boasting we know that it was not a concern over the spiritual consequences of ignoring the sin in their midst he simply says you're puffed up you're proud their endorsement of sin was as bad as the sin itself And so rather than boasting, Paul says, you ought to be mourning. See, the issue is not position or people or status. The issue is a correct response to sin. I was reading in a book again this week, and it says, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. I like that. It's a beautiful sunshine right now, and wherever you go, you see your shadow. You see shadows of everything. So he said, the the awareness of sin used to be a shadow. Everywhere we looked, we were aware of it. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, and grieved over it. A church that does not mourn over sin, especially sin within its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. You think about the churches in the book of Revelation. I think three of them were warned about tolerating sexual sin in their midst and practices amongst their people. And Jesus said, you've got to let it go. You've got to stop this. The word mourn is a word that's used to describe mourning for the dead. It's a recognition that there has been a serious impact. And our hearts are broken and they're sorrowful over this thing. And we know that sin is death and sin causes death. And so we ought to mourn over it. Christians aren't to tolerate sin within the community any more than we are to tolerate it within our own lives. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I think these past few weeks, for me personally, although I didn't identify it right away, I've been mourning over sin both mine and those of others. In these past two or three weeks, I have been exposed to more sin in its ugliness and its depths in ways that I never sort of understood or thought imaginable. Again and again and again. And I was angry. I was just mad. I couldn't place it. And I would, I, I would just, I'd get up in the morning. And I was mad. And I'd come to work and I was mad. And I'd go home and I was mad. And a couple of times I said to Kath, I said, Kath, I'm not mad at you. I'm just mad. I don't know why I'm mad. I'm just mad. I think it was yesterday as I was sitting in my office thinking about this passage. It struck me and I thought, Paul, maybe you're mourning over sin. We know that anger is a response to grief sometimes and I think that that was just what was boiling up inside of me. I was so ticked at what I saw it doing in me and how I saw it affecting my relationships and I how I saw it affecting the relationships of other people, and I was ticked off. I think that's in a small way what it means to mourn over sin. But there are much better biblical examples than me. You can go read about Moses and Phineas, Ezra and Nehemiah, Daniel, Jesus. All who saw sin realized its impact on people's lives, its offense to God and the judgment that would result, and they mourned over it. Sometimes they wept for hours. Sometimes they tore their clothes. Sometimes they took ashes and they put it over their head. They ripped out their beards. They were so shocked, so appalled, so grieved over the sin of themselves and God's people. Paul writes, I fear that when I come again, may God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity." their sexual immorality and their sensuality that they have practiced. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be torn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then I found great joy in Matthew 5, four: blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's an invitation to followers of Jesus as we enter into the kingdom of God. It's a recognition. It's a a good thing because it means you've recognized your sinfulness. And your response in that recognition is not pride and arrogance and joy. It's mourning and sorrow and sadness. And how could I ever do this? How, How did I ever do this? How can I continue to do this? And they mourned. For you shall be comforted at the cross the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So is mourning over your sin or the sins of others a novel idea to us? Or is it part of our regular experience day by day? And the result of the mourning is clear. He says, let the one who has done this be removed from among you. Remove him from your fellowship. The third thing that I wrote in my notes was sin. It belongs in the kingdom of Satan, not in the kingdom of God. Under most circumstances, the appropriate action to take when cancer is found in one's body is to remove it. It doesn't belong there. Sin does not belong among God's people. It's like a cancerous growth in the body. Removing it certainly can be painful, but it is necessary. And so... Paul begins first by letting them know what he has done and then by telling them what they are to do. He says, this is what I've done already. Even though I'm not there in person, I'm with you in spirit. He says, I, I've, I've already pronounced judgment on this individual. If he won't repent, if he won't acknowledge, if he won't admit and, and turn from his sinful ways, then all I can do is, based on his external behavior, say, you've got to be out of this body. And he says, as a church, this is what you need to do, And by the way, this is not just the responsibility of pastors and leaders in the church. Dealing with, with brothers and sisters who sin is a responsibility of all of us. And it's a real gift that God gives to us. It's, the desire is it never comes to an assembly point of view like this one, that it, it is dealt with after a coffee or two. And in Galatians it says this, it says, Brothers or sisters, If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, that means any brother or sister in Christ, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is not a witch hunt. This is not hammering on people. This is a spirit of gentleness. Why a spirit of gentleness? One, because I recognize my sinfulness and because I don't want to have a spirit of arrogance which sets me up then for doing the same thing that I'm talking to you about. And so he says you should re... You who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. I love that. I don't know about you, but sin is not an easy thing to carry. It's a burden. And often there's grief that follows it. And so when you come alongside and you've talked with somebody, you just bear the weight of that with them. You say, I'll pray with you. I'll walk with you. But God has forgiven you in Christ. And then Paul tells them what they are to do. Difficult words in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord as a congregation, and my spirit is with you, a beautiful reality of the body of Christ. It's not just a physical reality, it's a spiritual reality. You can be in the hospital, you can be um, away on business, and on the Lord's Day you can also be here with God's people. And so Paul was with them in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul may be saved on the day of the Lord. The big picture is clear again. Sin belongs in the kingdom of Satan, not in the kingdom of God. I hope we understand here today that Satan does have significant derived authority. And I say derived because he has no authority in and of himself. The only authority Satan have has, has is because God has given it. Him. And at the end of the first epistle to John, he gives them this reminder He says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We need to understand that. That's why this world is a mess. Because in one level, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul talks about, in another place, being delivered from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. His kingdom is a kingdom of darkness. Other places, the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, are referred to as domains. And I've reminded you before, and I do it again this morning, there are only two domains in this world. There's a lot of little sub-kingdoms, but there are only two ultimate kingdoms right now. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We are in one or the other. There is no third or fourth or fifth kingdom. We are in one or the other. We know also that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so when Paul says, deliver him over to Satan, what he's telling them to do is to turn him over to the rule of Satan, to remove him from the privileges of the kingdom of God, the fellowship of God's people, the benefits of God's kingdom, and You know them. There are beautiful benefits of being part of the family of God. I hear this all the time of what a joy it is. I I don't know what it would be like to not have this family to pray for me and to care for me and to support me and to exhort me and to lift me up. He says, You're to put him out in the world on his own, apart from the care and support of God's people. It's like a spiritual funeral. If he will not let God rule over him, if he won't submit his life to God, then turn him over to Satan's rule. Let Satan rule over him and let him submit his life to Satan. It's the action that Paul took towards Himinius and Alexander, whom he says, I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So why are they to remove him from their fellowship? For two reasons. One, for the benefit of the man, and two, for the benefit of the church. First, he says, for the destruction of his flesh. This ought to be a terrifying prospect. For those who accept the reality of the devil, and I believe that there is a real spiritual being created by God known as Satan, described in the Bible, and revealed in the world around us, pictured even though Hollywood doesn't understand it in so many of the horror movies that we have, which only touches a a level of his malevolence, whatever it is, you know what I mean, his badness, all that kind of stuff. So for those who accept the reality of the devil, to be handed over to Satan a created living being who is armed with cruel hate, as the songwriter said, is a terrifying prospect. From the first sight of him in the Garden of Eden to the description of his hatred of the people of God in Revelation 12 to the last breath of his influence in Revelation, we see his destructive power towards God's human creation. He is the father of lies. He leads people into the path of wickedness for hatred's sake. Just look at the, re- the, the destruction that results from all manner of sins as people pursue what they think is a wonderful thing, but it's actually bait on a hook, which leads them into terrifying, terrible situations. Look at the impact of sin on our bodies and disease and death. It was instructive for me to think about the account of Job, to remind myself of the flesh-destroying power of Satan. And again, it's a derived power. And again, I want to say that Job was not being punished because of sin. It was this amazing demonstration of his loyalty and love of God for the fact that he just loved God. But it reveals Satan's power. In a list of one thing after the other, Sabaeans who killed the field servants of Job and his oxen with the sword. As Satan was able to send fire from heaven and killed the sheep and the shepherds of Job. As Satan was able to call the Chaldeans who swarmed the camel herders, killing them and taking the camels. As Satan was able to call an incredible wind that destroyed the home where his children, where Job's children, were killing all of them. As Satan was able to strike Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet. The crown of his head. Do you think Satan has your best interests in mind? Do you think Satan is a good master? The most likely understanding of the destruction of the flesh, to my mind, is physical trauma, sickness, and premature death. There's your removed from the protection of God, making him vulnerable to Satan and his ways. While the initial result was surely punitive, the end goal was a spiritual awakening in this man. He needed to come to a sentence. This is is ultimately, loved ones, also a passage about grace and mercy. Like Nebuchadnezzar who was out in the field as an animal or like the prodigal son who reached the extremities of his life, sometimes that's what it takes to wake us up. the horrific nature of disregarding God and his laws in our life so Paul sees the punishment is remedial though his flesh is destroyed his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord that's the second point for the salvation of his spirit on the day of the Lord it may be that Paul is saying here we judge external behavior but only God knows the heart and I know that We don't know. I don't know what's in your heart. You don't know what's in my heart. But I do know what your behaviors are. And so my responses to my children and my responses to other people is based on your behavior. And so maybe what Paul is saying here is that the truly justified person will not lose their salvation. And I believe that. But they will lose the fellowship of God's people this side of heaven. Or maybe Paul is saying on saying that the basis of hope for this man is to be found in repentance. Jesus Christ is his only hope. Should he come to his senses and repent, even though his flesh has been destroyed, he will spend eternity with Jesus. Perhaps by tasting the bitterness of life outside the congregation of God's people, he will repent and be restored to fellowship. Loved ones, discipline is never easy. But it is an expression of love. Too many people today, and it it distresses me, see discipline as something that's harsh and mean. And yes, they would even say it's unloving. Nobody wants to be seen as the mean one, as the unloving one. But as we saw last week, the Bible will tell us again and again, and our experience is, I believe, as those who have been disciplined, that discipline is one of the biggest expressions of love. You love me enough, To correct me, you love me enough to show me that I am going down a disastrous path and to point me in the direction of the right path. You love me enough to risk my affections for my long term love. And I think we're going to have to end here. I'll pick it up next week, but I just want to say a little bit about this to fill out the context. Sin, we're not talking about oil and water here. Think infectious disease. Still using, again, the analogy of cancer, the goal is to get it out of the body because if you don't, it will eventually overtake the body, infiltrating its cells even to the point of bringing death. Sin infects the body the same way, both of the individual and the corporate body, the church. And I think too often we close our eyes to the impact that tolerating sin, even in our homes, has to the rest of our family and to the way that tolerating sin in a body of Christ has on the church. We know this, don't we? The Bible is clear that all of us today struggle with sin because of one man, Adam. And that because of his sinful actions, we all have been tainted with that act. We have examples of this throughout the Bible. Achan is one that comes to mind. The people of God were going into the promised land and They were about to uh, take Jericho down, and God commanded them, listen, when you go into Jericho, don't touch nothing. Just destroy it all. Achan went in there, and his eyes were bigger than his brain and his heart, and he stole a few things. He took them home. He dug a hole in the ground under his tent, and his family knew what he was doing, and he hid some of the stuff. A little while later, the army of Israel was going to take another town, Thirty-six men lost their lives, and the rest of the army was chased away in defeat. Why? Because of one man's sin. Sin has a corporate impact on families and on the church. And that's what Paul is going to talk about here. It's like leaven. Those of you who, break, who bake, you just need a tiny little bit of yeast or a little bit of yet leaven, and it, makes the, it affects the whole loaf of bread so it all rises. It's the same way with sin. You just need a tiny bit of sin to affect everything and everyone. And so the principle, and we'll, just, we'll come back to this next week. The principle is simple. Is that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump. As I said a little bit earlier, this text is full of mercy. It's a severe mercy, but it's a mercy nonetheless. I was thinking, you know, a healthy reminder of sin and guilt is clarifying and even reassuring for unlike some other identifications of human trouble, a diagnosis of sin and guilt allows hope. Do you believe that? That Correctly diagnosing sin and guilt in your life allows hope. Why? Because something can be done about it. And in fact, something has been done about it. You don't need to live with your sin. You don't need to be hostage to your sin. You don't need to be captive to your sin. You don't need to have a sentence of death hanging over your head because of your sin. You can be freed through Jesus Christ. And that is what the Lord's table is all about. It is an opportunity for us to remember what Jesus has done for us. And so, as we come to this table now, I just want to remind you that it's a table that points to the cleansing of our sin, the purification of our bodies. If you're refusing to deal with sin in your life and claiming to be a follower of Christ, you ought to not take of the table. It's not a mean thing. It's just a recognition that that it's a serious thing to trifle with God. But it's also a great opportunity this morning that if God is speaking your heart to mourn even this morning for your sins. The Bible is so clear that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And experience once again the fellowship And feel the purity of a cleansed conscience and a cleansed heart. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and His shed blood on our behalf. Oh, will we come with joy and thankfulness in our hearts this morning. For what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, His Son. Father, thanks for this time and your word this morning. As we now close our service gathering around the table. May it be a time of rejoicing because in this table we see Jesus Christ and we are reminded of the freedom that he has brought to us from the chains of sin, from the darkness of a guilty conscience into the light of Jesus Christ in a free conscience that is no longer under condemnation. So be with us in these next few minutes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.